Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Lodges Podcast. This is episode 15 with Marcus Howard. He is the founder of Project MQ. He is also a public speaker and author, so a well-qualified and amazing guest to have on the show. On top of that, Marcus is also from the Tampa Bay area, so it was fun for me to host someone else from Tampa um, because that is where I am from as well. So we talk about Project MQ, which is basically a platform for indie games to become discoverable. Um, He is a voice in the indie game community to help push it further into esports and gaming. So we talk all about that. We talk about TAG, which is the Tampa Association of Gaming, the role that it's playing right now in the Tampa Bay community. And we also talk about why he believes that indie games are the future of esports. So it's a really interesting conversation. Um, You know, if you don't know much about indie games or what they are, I really encourage you to listen to this episode. You'll learn a lot of things. For example, like Rocket League um, started as an indie game. So a lot of people don't know that. So he brings a lot of education and a lot of knowledge to the conversation. And I really think it'll be a fun episode for everyone to listen to. So with that being said, you are about to listen to The Lodges Podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Lodges Podcast. I am your host, Juan Rodriguez, the founder of Lodges Financial, a business management firm for video game streamers and esport athletes. Uh, welcome back, all of our current listeners, to another episode. If you are a new listener, this is a podcast where I host uh, streamers, business professionals within esports and gaming, and professional players to learn more about them. Um, to learn about their personal story as well as you know what they're doing today in gaming and in esports. So we have another fun episode planned for today. We have Marcus Howard, who is the founder of Project MQ and president of TAG, which is the Tampa Association of Gaming. So I met Marcus. This is actually kind of full circle. I, let, I, I met Marcus last summer um, down here at a Tampa Bay wave event, which, uh, is an opportunity for businesses to pitch and he was pitching and that's when I met him. And then we kind of got, um, reconnected again a a couple of weeks ago. Uh, so Marcus, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah. Thanks for the invite, man. Uh, you know, just getting off the airplane from a trip to Atlanta. So it's great to connect with you before I go put on my, my family hat. Uh, one of many hats, and then also, as you mentioned, you know, got the nonprofit that I'm growing here in Tampa Bay. So glad to talk about all of those. Yeah, yeah, no, and I was actually thinking about this before we got on because this this really does go full circle back for me because when I heard you speak last summer, that's was probably a week after I had got introduced to Twitch and the whole streaming platforms and all that, and I had gotten really into like competitive Fortnite. So it's it's funny to have you on now after, you know, everything that's happened in the last year and a half. So I'm excited to, to hear from you. Um, so, Marcus, what we typically do at the beginning of the episode, just to give our listeners some context for them to learn a, l- a little bit more about you. If you just want to give us the five to ten minute story of who you are, where you grew up, um, what's your story? We, we'd love to hear it. Sure. And you can't see this because it's an audio call, but I'm holding the NES cartridge for Super Mario Brothers 3. People were joking with me when I was at our esports event last night. Like, man, you keep this on you? I was like, yeah, man, I grew up with it. Like, it stays on me 24-7. <laughs> but we got that when we were six, my twin brother and I. And we've been playing video games ever since. And it inspired us to pursue technology careers. So I got an IT degree with a minor in management. My brother got his degree in computer science. And for, you know, 20-plus years, we loved playing video games. And with our technical degrees, we then understood that video games are just programs, applications, just like you know, Gmail is for sending communications and Netflix is for watching content, you know, movies and Facebook is for socializing. So with that, that understanding of the technical piece of how games work and what they are and our passion still for wanting to play video games, we decided it was time to make our own game. Actually, the second time, the first time we tried to make our own game was in ninth grade. We were in magnet school. We found out you could put video games on the TI-81 plus graphing calculator. Yeah. <laughs> so we started playing like all those like drug wars and Tetris and all the cool stuff. 
and started making our own game was kind of a Zelda clone, but our trigonometry teacher didn't appreciate us, A, playing video games in class, and B, more importantly, teaching everyone else in class how to do the same thing. So while we were at lunch, she went by everyone's calculators and deleted the memory, which wipes out the games, including the one we were making. Oh, wow. And <laughs> then fast forward 10 years, uh, now we're going to make our game again, try to make a game again. We had this really cool concept for a puzzle game with some RPG elements. And we spent about two years putting together the game design document, all like, concept art for the levels and all the power-ups and stuff. And in researching the space to understand like what's the market potential for our game, that's when we discover that game discovery is broken and it's been broken for over 30 years. It's kind of a pay to win ecosystem. You know, if you can't afford expensive TV ads like your Fortnites and your Maddens and your Call of Duties, no one knows your game exists. Right. So we grew Project MQ organically as a solution. We needed both as game developers trying to build an audience for our game and as gamers trying to find just really cool games to play. And so now what we have is a multimedia search engine exclusively for indie games. So again, you won't see AAA titles there, nothing against them, but that's not what our ecosystem is for. And then when you find games on our site, you know, via gameplay trailers or concept art and the future music, we link you to places where those games are available. So Steam and in the future places like, you know, the iTunes store and, you know, PlayStation Network, things like that. Yeah. Most recently, real quick, well, most recently we've made a, a pivot, uh, a partial pivot into esports, where now we're going to be in 2020 uh, launching a collegiate esports platform powered by indie games. So that's that's Project MQ in a nutshell. Okay. And so take us back. Uh, so did you were you originally from Tampa, or did you grow up somewhere else? No, I grew up right outside of um, Atlanta in a city called Conyers, okay. and then I went to Georgia Southern, which is right outside of Statesboro, southeast Georgia, near Savannah, and I've been in Tampa the last six years. Okay, nice. And so, um, and remind me, because I don't remember if you just brought it up, you said, where was it that you went to school, and what did you study in school again? Yeah, I went to Georgia Southern University. It's in Statesboro. It's about 45 minutes outside of Savannah, you know, the major city in southeast Georgia. Right. And I studied information technology with a minor in management. Okay. Nice. Nice. And then you've been in Tampa ever since, ever since you moved back down here, right? Yeah, ever since I moved down here. I actually got, I graduated from Georgia Southern and I was working as an intern for a company that only employed students. So they, oh. they laid me off and then I got a job working for the school and their IT team. And one of my coworkers who also got laid off at that job migrated down here to Florida. He's like, hey, man, there's a software development job here. I said, that sounds cool. We used to do that at our old job. How much does it pay? He's like, three times what you're making at Georgia Southern. So four weeks later, I lived in Florida. It's <laughs> not, not a bad reason to leave and move somewhere new, you know. Right. Uh, that's awesome. That's awesome. And so you have Project MQ now, um, which we'll dive deeper into. You kind of gave us a little bit of the, the background. Is there anything else kind of, I know you gave us a bit of the founding story there. Is there any other details? You know, I mean, what originally led you to want to create something like this, right? Why did you want to create Project MQ? Well, what we experienced trying to create our own game, we then shortly thereafter recognized that that's a major global problem. 75% of all PC games, of at least all PC games, are made by independent game developers, and there's a chance that's the same case for mobile and some other platforms. But indie games only represent 2% of the global revenue. When you actually average that out, and the last time this report was created was in 2014, it reported that in 2013, the average game developer made less than $500 per year. Oh, wow. You know, you can barely survive a week off of that or two weeks off right. of that alone an entire year and grow a company. It's just not sustainable. Right. Gotcha. And so then that's where you guys are like, you know, there's an area, there's a help for need right there. And you guys kind of have stepped in with that. Right. We just wanted to solve that problem. You know, it's, it's somewhat selfish. We wanted to solve it for us, but we also enjoy playing video games. And we want to continue to see awesome games like, you know, League of Legends and Clash of Clans and Rocket League and, and Minecraft. Those are all technically created by indie teams. Imagine if those games never existed. Like the entire re reason that Fortnite exists is because they basically stole the idea from an indie team in South Korea. 
Hmm. Elaborate on that a little bit for people that, you know, might not know that story or might not know the context behind that. Sure. So everybody knows about Fortnite. It made nearly $2.5 billion last year as a free game. They've got over 250 million users worldwide. And they are kind of uh, recognized as like the beginning of the battle royale genre, which is more or less Hunger Games, right? Right. Well, what less people know is the company that owns them is called Epic Games. They make the Epic Game or Epic... um, uh, the game development engine, it's not, it's called CryEngine. No, that's CryTech. They make a game development engine. I can't think of the name mm-hmm. of it right now. And they sell that to developers. So they let developers use it for free. And then developers can pay Epic Games money. Unreal, the Unreal Engine. People can pay Epic Games money to have the Epic Games development team make enhancements to the Unreal Engine. There is an independent studio, game studio, or formerly independent game studio in South Korea called Bluehole Studios, and they created Player Unknown Battlegrounds, PUBG. Right. Uh, which more or less is, and, and that was actually inspired by another indie game, but for the sake of this conversation, they created, <laughs> created uh, the battle royale genre. They went to Epic Games and said, hey, we want to make a game that supports you know, 100 people at the same time and all these concepts that are in PUBG. And they paid pub, they paid uh, Epic Games to make these enhancements. Well, it worked out, and they launched PUBG, and then PUBG was so successful, Epic Games said, "Hey, Bluehole Studios, we're gonna roll that feature set that we developed just for you into our general Unreal Engine, so all of our developers can use it." And then later they said, "Hey, Bluehole Studios team, your idea is so popular." that we're going to use it ourselves. We have this existing game that no one is playing. I think it was called Save the World. It's it's a tower defense game, you know, where you put down turrets and monsters show up and mm-hmm. turrets destroy the monsters. Nobody was playing that game. So they basically lifted the assets out of the Save the World game, and I'm probably getting the name of that game wrong, but they lifted the assets out, applied it to that concept of Hunger Games, and created... Fortnite. That's how they were able to create the game in, in like 90 days or six months because they already had all of the other pieces of the game ready and they just copy and pasted it. Wow. I've never actually, to be very honest with you and everyone, listen, I've never even heard of the story of how Fortnite kind of got founded like that or started. So that's honestly interesting just for me to hear too. Um, no, you had it right. It saved the world. I believe they still, you know, so Fortnite has the, the multiplayer 100, you know, against everybody and then they have saved the world. So and no one is still playing the Save the World game. Yeah, very rarely. I've seen it maybe once every six months or something, but nobody plays Save the World. You know, everyone's playing the the free for all basically. Right. Um, no, that's super interesting. And so to to backtrack a little bit, when you founded Project MQ, was it just your brother and you, or did you guys have other people on your team? And kind of what does it look like right now? Do you guys have other people working with you? Uh, we found it, it was just the two of us. So we split the build down the middle, you know, a small team. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had the, the minor in management and Malcolm had the more, you know, traditional programming background. So he handled all the tech related stuff and I handled everything else. So Malcolm's written all the code for the current website. Uh, we actually have a mobile app that we're working on that we've had to kind of put on the back burner because we don't have the bandwidth to finish it. Mm-hmm. And I built the all the strategic partnerships. I generated um, 22 million organic impressions via our Twitter community in 2016 from content marketing and growth hacking. Mm-hmm. You know all of that stuff. Right. And now, nearly seven years later, it more or less is still just the two of us. We do have some people who are slotted to come on full time if we can get an investment to bring them on full time. But until then, you know, we're just going to keep punching the clock at the nine to five because we're bootstrapping our company. We, we're right. self-funding it with the salaries from our day jobs. Right. Oh, that's awesome. That's, it's hard to do definitely. And that's impressive that you guys have, you know, been going for seven years and you're still going strong and growing. So that's really cool to hear. Um, what, it, and I guess we maybe should have started with this, but for maybe someone who's listening, who doesn't understand what an indie game is, how would you describe that to them? That's a great question. I get that all the time, especially when we go to pitch competitions. It's almost identical to what you see with independent music and independent film. So most people are familiar with those concepts. It's, you know, a small team, maybe one person or, you know, two to five people who own complete creative control over the, the, the um, art that they produce. But they typically don't have either 
the marketing budget, the production value, or the distribution channels that you would expect from publicly traded companies. So you see that all the time in film and music, and the same thing is the case here in the gaming industry. Most of the studios we work with around the world, and our site currently has about 100 games from 40 countries, um, they're either solo developers, so they do art, music, you know, level design, gameplay, everything, story, all by themselves, or they work in two to 10 person teams, but they own their IP. And so while that's great, they don't have really the business infrastructure to take the game to market. And that's what we're trying to help them do with our site. Gotcha. And so is, is that the struggle then for someone who is creating an indie game is the fact that they don't have that capability? Exactly. And again, like I was saying in 2013, uh, the average indie game developer or game developer, indie game developer made $500 of revenue per year. Right. And there's a term in the industry that people use to refer to this. They call it the indie apocalypse, like you know, the apocalypse for indie games. <laughs> yeah. But I, I actually have a, a theory that the indie apocalypse is just the beginning. Um, right now, it's devastating the indie space, but I feel like if this problem isn't solved and soon, it's going to escalate to what I refer to as game again, game Armageddon. Right. Right. Yeah. No. It's it's definitely seems like something that needs to be solved, and you guys are are doing a good job of that. And so I guess th- that leads me to this question: Is can you walk us through um, what does it look like typically when you have someone who wants to get their game found on their site or they're a game developer? You know, how do you work with them, and what does that process look like? Sure. So what we've done, again, through the content marketing, and we started on Twitter as kind of a proof of concept of, A, do people like indie games? B, if we curated the best games from around the world and shared content from those games, would game developers want us to do that, to help them with that, and would gamers enjoy that and share that? And the answer to all those questions basically was yes. So we reach out to some developers. It's now gotten to the point where some developers are reaching out to us, and then if if some of it's really subjective, like do we think it's cool? Do we think it's original? There, are, you know, some objective pieces of uh, kind of quality standards in the production value. But after we identify a game, then uh, I send them a registration link, and it's to a Google form. Our brother's written some code in Python that once the developer fills out the form, uh, he hits a button and it automatically does the entire account creation process for them. So then. All they have to do is sign into our site, uh, which they can do with Steam, the Steam account, because we have Steam integration Malcolm built into it. Mm-hmm. And with two other clicks, they can import media from third-party sites. So that's how we work with developers. Um, back in 2016, we used to host uh, like trivia raffles where developers would give us keys to their games, and we'd work with them to generate like trivia questions. Like you would go to like trivia night. And when our Twitter community answered the correct questions, they were eligible to win keys to games. So we want to get kind of back to that. That was chewing up a lot of my time. And again, you know, I've got two toddlers, my day job and the nonprofit. Right. I I can't do it anymore. Yeah, no, that's I mean, that's a lot to handle, especially because, you know, putting on little events or or things like that online are definitely time consuming, Um, especially keeping up with raffles and, and things like that. So it once they have access to your site then when you say they're able to you know input media from a third party site so basically that allows them to put the game on your site or is it just discoverable on your site just discoverable and and i want to i'm glad you asked that i want to clarify we're not a game distribution platform we're not uh, a steam or an epic game store and we've had you know people in the community and prospective investors say you know how do you compete against steam we actually complement Steam and, and the Epic Game Store by linking out to those platforms. So our platform is purely for you finding a game that you will love that you didn't know about. And once you find it, we link you to places where you can go buy it. So there might be a link to the Steam uh, widget or the, the Steam store page. If the game is not released yet, you can click a link on our site and wishlist the game. If the game is available, you can click a link on our site and add the game to your cart without having to go to Steam. No, that's awesome. That makes it really easy too. Um, yeah. And it's and I think it's smart that you guys aren't. It's not like you're having to comp- like you're saying you're not having to compete with Steam. And it's almost as if you two complement each other. Um, you know, that's that's cool to see. So there's not that tension or you know going against each other like there. You know. Um, 
So for someone who, who maybe isn't, you know, hasn't checked out the site or, or they don't know, can they search by categories, by descriptions or, or what can they do? You know, let's, I, let's say for example, we have someone new that hears the podcast, they go on and they're navigating the site, you know, how is it set up for them to find games that they would like? Awesome question. The way it's set up is very similar to like Facebook and Twitter in terms of having like a scrolling feed or, or YouTube having a scrolling content feed. So if you go to our site right now at www.projectmq.com, you'll see our homepage. And on the homepage is the most recently posted content from any developers on our platform. And we designed it that way to give an incentive to the indie studios. If they post new content, they automatically get front page visibility. That's awesome. So from there, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Keep, keep continuing. I didn't mean to interrupt. My bad. Yeah, yeah. From there, you can go click. There's a link that's called games, and it's just a catalog of all of our games. It has a search bar. You can search games by um, genre, by platform, or like the type of multiplayer, so local co-op, um, online co-op, uh, single player only, and add those combinations together to see what we have in our ecosystem. And again, we curate those games from the best games around the world. And right now we have games on there from 40 countries. Which which is amazing. I was actually about to, to ask you to highlight that so that anyone who obviously hasn't seen this gets an idea of how many different people you guys are working with. Because I think that's really cool that it's not like it's just something here in the u.s and then maybe in one other country but that you guys are working with so many people from around the world so so many different backgrounds um tastes you know all that i think that makes it really cool um so that's awesome and so i know you talked on this just a little bit a couple of minutes ago but so you guys i saw because I, I checked last night before we got on here just to see where you guys are at so on twitter you guys have almost I think like 36 or 37,000 followers. You talked about how you organically generated so many impressions through Twitter. Um, you know, talk about being such a heavy influencer for indie games on Twitter. What was it like growing that following? Um, you know, how important is Twitter to you guys today? Because I I'm always just amazed with the power of social media. I love social media and being active on there. So it's always fun to hear from my guests, you know, how they're using their social social media platforms. Social media has been amazing for us, and, and we've used that to avoid having to spend money on paid advertising for user acquisition, which very candidly we couldn't afford because, again, you know, we don't have outside investment money. Right. So we, we had to be thrifty and resourceful, and, and social media was the way to do that. Plus, that was some of the ways we were already discovering new games. So what we would do is just you know seek out these games, partner with these studios, build relationships with them. Relationship building is very important no matter what industry you're in. Um, and then help them learn what we learned so that they could be more effective at their own user acquisition. And then we would help them augment that with our community. So if you take a game that's an indie game and you come to us, we built a community of indie game fans, they're more likely to be uh, receptive to your game than maybe somebody who plays you know halo or fortnite because right. they're you know there's just two different demographics some people don't really care about indie games but there are people who love them and and really will like prioritize indie games over triple a games right no, but that being said uh you know i i would say that using any third-party social media platform is a liability um, and this is a perfect example. Like right now, we only have about 150 users on our site out of those 37,000. The reason for that is the entire time that we were building the social media community, we again, we split the build down the middle. Malcolm was building the platform and I was building the community. The goal was to launch the platform, send the people from the community to the platform. There was a specific feature that Twitter allowed you to do basically like templated messages where you could create a template message, add some tags like first name, last name, two or three sentences, you know, best regards, Marcus, right? You've seen those before. Probably right. get in your email. Yeah. You could, you could, you used to be able to do something somewhat similar to that and basically just load up your entire following list and send that templated message, which would then be customized for each user. Mm -hmm. About three years ago, Twitter disabled and deprecated that feature. And our entire user acquisition strategy was designed around building up this huge community and then 
clicking one button and inviting them all at one time. Uh, and then that, that strategy was gone because Twitter as a third party platform that we relied on took that from us. And it's their discretion and their prerogative to add or remove features as they see fit, but it destroyed right. our, our user acquisition strategy because I don't have time to have conversations with 37,000 people in 120 countries. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, that's tough. So did you guys, wow, I didn't know that. So did you guys ever get a chance to send like, you know, a template, you know, customized specifically for each individual user ever, or, or, or did you never get the chance as it got removed? We never got a chance. We just had oh, to wow. kind of make whatever pivot we could, which was let's identify people that are engaging with us most frequently and, and studios, you know, mm -hmm. both gamers and studios that we engage with most frequently on Twitter. We have the relationships with them. Let's add them. Right. Uh, so we, we sent out 500 invitations. This is actually right before GDPR, which hurt us as well because most of our, only 30% of our Twitter audience is in the United States. Everything else is global. And the way GDPR is set up is you're not only beholden the people who live in the European Union, and I don't know if you know what GDPR is. It's like uh, basically, I don't know, I can't remember the acronym, but it's about uh, privacy of user data. Okay. Um, it's It applies to anybody who lives in the European Union or who is from the European Union, who has like citizenship in the European Union, who's living overseas. So that basically covers the entire globe. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it was it was a kick to the stomach, man. Um, so we're just trying to slowly build it back up. And the other problem is is that the space is really volatile. So people that we were working with three years ago may have switched to other studios, and in several cases, many of those studios we worked with closed because of how bad the problem is. They just right. didn't survive long enough. So now we're just trying to like piecemeal it back together while we work on this other pivot. Right. Yeah, that's that's crazy. I mean, that's a good example, though, of, you know, how the business works worldwide, especially for, you know, people like you guys that you have such a large audience internationally. Um, you know, that's that's tough to navigate. And and, you know, that's things that you guys had, you know, so many people that now couldn't access it. I mean, that's that's a hard hit. I can imagine that was tough to go through. It was um, a long weekend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I bet. I bet. Well, that's, I don't know. I just think that's cool that you guys have grown that Twitter, that you grew it organically. Um, because you know, there's there's a lot of people that have grown followings on social media, or people these days that grow a following, but a lot of it is just paid or, or just ads. And you know, there's I feel like a lot of people don't try to work grow as organically anymore. So th that's pretty cool that you guys were able to do that, even though you've had some some speed bumps along the way. Um, Something I wanted to talk about because, you know, I've seen you speak actually twice in person. You know, like I said at the beginning of the podcast, I heard you speak last summer when you guys were giving the pitch at Tampa Bay Wave. And then I had the opportunity to hear you speak again um, at the USF University of South Florida Esports Summit a month or two ago. So what are some of the speaking opportunities that Project MQ has led you to? You know, what have they been like? Um, how have you enjoyed them? That whole sort of thing. The one that's coming up uh, most immediately, I'll, I was invited to speak at the uh, Skillshot Esports Summit that's going to be at the Georgia World Congress Center on Friday, November 15th. That's mm -hmm. the same weekend in the same building as DreamHack Atlanta. So uh, DreamHack Atlanta is going to be on the bottom floor, like the main floor of the World Congress Center, and on the second floor simultaneously is this esports conference. So it's, it's amazing to have kind of that platform people recognize uh, that there's some validity in our theories about how impactful indie games are to the future of esports. Right. That's an awesome, awesome speaking opportunity. Um, and, you know, I know that's that's tough too sometimes for you guys because, for example, for me, I really didn't know much about indie games. Um, you know, I was first actually exposed to them when I met you or heard you speak last last summer. So it's impressive to see you guys you know consistency to keep pushing it um to be a voice for it so i think that's just awesome it's really unique and and you guys are doing cool things um is there anything else where i want to shift a little or i want to shift over the tag and everything that's going on with the station gaming but is there anything else that you want to highlight with project mq that we missed or, or that you think is important uh talk about the pivot in the esports we can cover that a little bit later Okay. Uh, one thing I want to leave on a note is that I, I agree with you that most people don't know about indie games as a concept and, and they 
if they do know about it, the, the stigma against or stigma for indie games is really negative, like low quality, not fun, just crap games. Mm-hmm. But I would challenge the average gamer to check their library that the, some of the games they may be playing or have played or played most recently or most frequently may be indie games. Most people don't know Minecraft started indie, League of Legends, Clash of Clans, uh, Brawlhalla, um, the, the list goes on. And, and even last year, and this is one of our major success stories, uh, an indie game won the 2018 Action Game of the Year Award globally. They beat entries from publicly traded AAA game companies like Capcom, mm-hmm. Ubisoft, and Activision Blizzard. The game is called Dead Cells. It's made by an indie studio in France called Motion Twin. We discovered their game two years, almost two years before their commercial launch, and we supported their early access launch. So much so they wrote a letter of recommendation for us. So no one, generally speaking, knew who they were until we found them. We we kind of mentored them. They were doing some great things. Mm-hmm. We don't take any credit for the game. They made an amazing game. But we right. helped them rise above the noise so that the rest of the generic industry and the, the average gamer could see it and appreciate it. And since their launch two years ago, they've sold 2.4 million units. Wow. And, and in a nutshell, that's really, or that's essentially what you guys are trying to do, right, is to give them that platform to help them through that process to be discoverable, right? Those are all goals that you guys have for Project MQ. Right. We want to slingshot games from unknown to, you know, the next mainstream hit. Yeah. No, that's, that's really cool. I, I have a, and I might be putting you on the spot, so let me know if you don't know this, but I'm, I'd be curious, is there any statistics or data out there that shows, you know, how many out of your average gamer, how many people have played an indie game and maybe realized didn't even realize that it was an indie game or started as an indie game, I guess. I don't know if that's published publicly. Um, I, I will say that we surveyed our indie community. Um, Malcolm and I have been through now four accelerators in the last four years um, across four different states. Um, in, in our eight state trek to go get seed funding, which has still been unsuccessful for a number of socioeconomic reasons we can discuss at another time. This mm-hmm. is off topic. But during that process of one of those accelerators, uh, they asked us to do a customer discovery and send out a survey. Now, our responses are probably more biased than not because we're working with a community that we've groomed of indie game fans. And, and, and I don't have the numbers in front of me, but we, we basically asked the group, uh, you know, do you have you played any indie games or did, did you know that any of these games are indie? And we, we list a number of very popular games and most gamers in that survey set didn't know that they were already playing indie games. Right. And Minecraft again is a perfect example. Like Minecraft sold a hundred million units uh, in 2015, right? That's, that's a ton of people. Yeah. And most people don't know that game started indie. Yeah. No, I mean, I think Minecraft is a great example because I remember even in high school and so to give everyone a timeline, I graduated in 2014. I remember that through really my junior and senior year, I believe, I mean, there was kids all the time in class that were playing Minecraft and, you know, people at lunch would be playing Minecraft. Um, and, you know, just to back up, Marcus, you a little bit, uh, not at all were these kids like, you know, I don't know. I think maybe sometimes when people think any games, they think like, really nerdy or like you were saying, like not as fun, but I mean, I had a lot of regular friends playing Minecraft, a lot of people you wouldn't consider nerdy or anything like that. And it was like really popular in high school. So I don't know, I guess that's kind of where my question was stemming from is because I think of that and I bet that a lot of those kids or friends that I had that were playing Minecraft didn't realize, you know, it was an indie game or started as an indie game. So that's, that's why I was curious. Yeah. And, and that's kind of the opportunity, but also the challenge is that we're having to grow awareness of the, the quality games that are out there so we can grow the demand so that we can feed these indie games into that demand. Right. So no one's doing it, but no one's doing it. No one else is doing it around the world. We're, we're the best at it globally because it's frankly an impossible problem to solve. (laughs) Steam failed at it, right? They created the green light program in 2014. They shut it down in 2017 because they couldn't solve game discovery. There's a company called playfield.io that got an investment from London venture partners. Mm -hmm. Uh, to build a platform, they self-branded as quote unquote the solutions to the indie apocalypse. They failed because they couldn't do it. Several other companies have tried and failed. It's a very difficult, like an extremely impossible problem to solve. We've been consistently solving it over the last six years. We just don't have the resources to scale it, unfortunately. Right. 
Right. No, but I, I mean, I applaud your guys' dedication and, like I said, consistency of just, you know, keep on pushing and, and keep on being a voice and, and a platform for it. I think it's really impressive. Um, okay. Well, we're, I think we'll, we want to talk a little bit more in a couple of minutes about, you know, how, why you think indie games are the future of esports. So we're not done talking about indie games just yet. But I do want to transition now to TAG, which is the Tampa Association of Gaming. Um, you know, similar to how you gave us kind of the origin story of Project MQ, can you tell us a bit about, you know, because you found TAG, is that correct? Or are you, or you uh, just the same person? founders There okay. are two or three businesses in the area, and I think you've met some of those co-founders here. Uh, Derek Watford runs High Point Gamer. It's an esports consultancy management. Right talent management and an event production company. You may or may not have met Lewis McClam, who runs uh, Views Marketing. It's a ad network for virtual reality and, and gaming. So he can, like if you, you're playing Fortnite and you have to drink a soda can to recharge your shields, he can put the Red Bull logo around the soda can and then track and measure your engagement with that can, like how long you looked at it, when you picked it up, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then there's another one that's called uh, Game Drive, and they're basically taking players from couch to co-op. So they're solving discovery of future esports professionals for teams and schools, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Uh, and then we also have uh, Rare Drop. Rare Drop put on um, what's it called? GCX. I can't think of the name of the event that they just rebranded to GCX, but. Guardian Con, and it was originally in Tampa, then they moved it to Orlando. I, I think it's it's still in Orlando. But those are the founding companies that put this together, and the purpose was to grow both the gaming industry and STEM youth programs in the Tampa Bay region, not just Tampa City proper, but the metropolitan area. Right. And so can you tell us a bit about what are some of the events you guys have done so far, right? What are some of the activations you've had? The most recent activation we had, it's, it's been a long year, it was back in March, we hosted a indie game, multi-game tournament. So most tournaments you see like Fortnite or Madden or, or whatever, mm -hmm. typically just one game. We had multiple games with multiple genres, but the commonality amongst them was they were all indie games. So that, that kind of allowed us to leverage what each of our businesses were bringing to the space collectively. We have this amazing network globally of the best games you've never heard of and we're able to with those relationships kind of get some of those games for cheap if not free depending on the game and the opportunity and then high point gamer was able to structure all the equipment we needed for the tournament and uh you know we had views marketing there supporting us with some ad partnerships we were able to actually partner with the microsoft store in international plaza to host the event on site in their store that's awesome we want to start doing more of those types of events in the future. Uh, I think I've had conversations with you. We're really trying to get reorganized for 2020 because all of us are doing separate things. And we want to make sure we have enough people and enough time to make this grow because it helps us all grow. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. And is there, well, you talked a little bit about how you guys are planning for 2020, so I won't, I won't touch on that yet. Um, and, and I guess, Marcus, can you talk a bit about why did and I think here we can talk a little bit about Tampa and esports and all that. But a question I have for you is why did you believe and why did, you know, some of those other founding companies believe that creating an association like this was needed for Tampa, is beneficial for Tampa, for creating a landscape of esports and gaming? You know, what were some of the thoughts that you had behind that? A couple of thoughts there. First and foremost, I think that Tampa is highly underrated in the global gaming and esports ecosystem. I believe we're currently ranked 34th nationwide um, in gaming and esports. You know, the top five include Atlanta, where I was just at yesterday or actually this morning, mm -hmm. uh, LA, Seattle, New York, cities that you always hear about. But we're ranked 34th, which is more or less, you know, quote unquote, flyover city space. Right. But we have the best, literally the best beaches in the world. We have some of the lowest cost of living, not in the world, sorry, the best beaches in the country. We have some of the lowest cost of living in the country. We have, you know, somewhere between two and five billion dollars of, of commercial development for like evening and, and weekend activities going up around town, depending on where you are, Water Street or North Tampa. And we, 
the Tampa Bay Sports Commission, I think, hosts 100 different sports events every year in the city of Tampa. Uh, we've got the Super Bowl coming up in 2021. We have the NCAA Women's uh, National Championship. Uh, sorry, the Final Four in the National Championship game was earlier this year. There was a major golf tournament, Vespa or something, I think that's what it's called. Uh, WWE comes down here all the time. All these major sporting events happen in Tampa, so we're already a sports community. I think when you add all those pieces together, that you have this this untapped opportunity to really put us in the top five uh, of esports cities for the U.S. And, and that's my goal and the goal I've shared with the team and committed to the community is I want to make Tampa a top five market for esports and gaming by 2021. Yeah. No, and I mean, it's like you just listed, we have so much sports and it's not even just having the sports. I, I, so I moved down for any listeners that even just may not know. So I moved down to Tampa officially in January and it's not even just the fact that, you know, you're saying we have a hundred different games we've put on. We have all these that we know we have NFL, NHL, MLB, uh, we have some college sports, but it's the fact that I feel like to Tampa is just embraces being a sports city. Like, you know, everyone that lives here, the community really enjoys the sporting events or passionate behind it. Um, you know, I think I, I have to agree that I think it has a bright future for being a top five city just because if you get enough people behind it. And I think if you give it, give people the exposure and the education behind everything that's going on in esports, I think that a lot of people would be amazed with it and would, would have a growing interest in it. I agree. And I'm working on several projects that I can't quite share yet. We'll probably have this conversation offline because the deals are still mm -hmm. early in place. But again, because I'm leveraging my national and global network from having built my company nationally and globally for the last six years to get the attention of some major national players and international players. Um, I, I can't say what the conversation will be next week, but you may have seen on our blog that we have Project MQ has a strategic partnership with Tencent Games. Tencent is the eighth largest company in the world and literally the largest gaming company in the world. The reason that the PUBG company dropped their billion dollar lawsuit against Fortnite is because, well, in my opinion, is because Tencent Games has an investment in both of those companies. Tencent Games has, if you read my chapter in the Business of Esports book, they are invested in basically every major gaming company in the world. So if, if I were Tencent and I saw two of my investor companies using my investment money to sue each other, I would say, hey, stop wasting my money. Right. Yeah. No, that's it's, it's, it's crazy. You know, you don't you don't want anything like that, I guess. I don't know that that's interesting. I didn't know. And you're honestly a lot of the things you're telling me, I've kind of have like a little bit of context for, but I'm just as much learning through this conversation as, as a lot of our listeners might be, because you know, you're really deep into it. And I know you have a lot of, uh, experience and education and everything that's going on in the esports industry overall. So, um, you know, it's, it's just interesting for me here sometimes. So sometimes I just don't have much to say cause I'm processing everything you're telling me. So that's, that's interesting. Um, and, and but, again, I can share some more of those details in the next few weeks. Uh, some of that stuff, again, we can discuss offline, but we're, we're looking to make yeah. some announcements between here and the end of the year that are going to start catapulting us, you know, into the top 20, top 15, top 10. And then by 2021, if we continue that the momentum we're building up, definitely we'll be a top five city by the end of 2021. Yeah. And do you think uh, specifically to that, do you think that having like, championships here and things like that is what's important do you think it's having professional esports teams here that, that you know that's important or you know what do you think just in case we have some people since i know you and i both have a tampa network maybe if they're listening give them some context of some of the things that you think would help propel tampa up in the rankings i would say d all the above uh, if you okay. look at i believe this is the international which is in seattle mm -hmm. every year at the Staples Center, they sell out that stadium in 45 minutes every year because it's a game that appeals to a global audience. And so if we start hosting those types of events, you now have global tourism dollars and even local dollars attending these events. That helps out the entire community from the hotels to the local mom and pop restaurants mm -hmm. and all the Uber drivers and everyone in between. Big economy boost, yeah. 
Yeah, and then so that that's the the esports event side. Then we had a team. You know, that'd be excellent as well. We have more local events around esports. We don't. I don't think we have a team. We we now have both gaming. Uh, they haven't announced that they have a quote unquote team yet. I think it's still early for them. But you know, Orlando has their own team. Miami has their own team. Atlanta mm-hmm. has their own team. If we want to be seen as a legitimate market, that's kind of part and parcel. Like we we need to start getting more invested in the ecosystem as a community internally before we start asking, you know, people from outside the community, whether it's brands, sponsoring brands or or partnered companies like Tencent and other companies to invest in Tampa as well. Right. Yeah. No, you have to have that core foundation. I agree. Um, before you go to any sponsors or anything like that, I think that's important. But I, I think, you know, to kind of wrap this this segment up, I think that through you, through you know, we talked about Derek over at High Point Gamer and some of the other founding companies that are part of Tampa Association of Gaming. There are a lot of people right now in Tampa that you know we're both aware of that are working to push gaming and esports. Um, so you know, I think that 2021 goal is 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 a good goal, and I think that people will begin to hear a little bit more about Tampa Gaming just because I think that core foundation is is really there, and now it's just like you're saying a matter of the community of leaders coming together and just continuing to push it forward and, and that whole sort of thing. So it's going to be exciting and, you know, it, it'll be cool to be a part of that. Um, anything else with, with Tampa or, or tag that, that we missed and you want to touch on? Not right now. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to stir the pot, but I'd love to see more support from the local governments for it. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that the universities are excited. I've, I've had conversations with USF, UT, um, St. Pete College, HCC. Uh, the local schools see that it's important, and they're—I can't name any specifics—but there, several of them are making efforts to to get more uh, esports communities and structures established at their schools. So that that's a help, right? It's a huge help on that side, but we need the local community to want to give the same support for esports that we're, that they're already providing for, you know, football and baseball and soccer. Right. Right. No, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, and we'll see how that plays out. And, you know, everyone either listening that's from Tampa or outside of Tampa, you guys can definitely follow everything going on in social media to see how that plays out. Um, but it's going to be exciting to see, uh, Marcus. So I want to now kind of shift back over to indie games for, for the last couple of minutes here for the next few minutes let's go back into it just a little bit more um you know where do you think indie games currently is right now um and talk and and i know we kind of have talked a little bit about this i guess but anything that we may have missed or if you want to deep dive a little bit more in it but what's the current state of it and why do you think it plays an important role for the future of gaming and esports and that's an excellent question, too. And, and I've mentioned this both in the chapter and the, the business of esports, and I'll be speaking on this in more detail in two weeks at Atlanta for the Esports Business Summit there. But I, I firmly believe that and understand that indie games are the future of esports. And for several reasons. The first and, and most obvious one to me is that it's just the, the, the math, right? You look at the percentages of games created by independent game developers, even just on PC, let's exclude mobile and VR and console, but just on PC, the majority of esports games right now are PC games. If 75% of literally every video game in the entire PC catalog of global games is created by independent game developers, naturally, they're going to produce a significant percentage of games in esports. It's just the nature of of how that works. But more uh, importantly, and, and further down the road, I think socially they're the future because you'll see, and you may already be seeing this, a lot of major brands are still very hesitant to get into esports because most of what's in there, I would say 50% plus or so of games and of the, the most popular esports games, either are hyper violent like your Mortal Kombat with the fatalities and high volumes of blood. Mm-hmm. Or they have guns in it. That's everything from Call of Duty to even the kiddier version of it, like Fortnite. And I want to be clear that the research consistently indicates that there is no significant link between playing violent games and the mass shootings that we've seen here in the United States. Right. Uh, that being said, there is a massive perception that 
violent video games, lead, especially those with guns, lead to mass shootings. Yeah. So because of that public perception, those brands who want to get into esports don't want to be associated with those violent games or those games with guns. Neither do schools nor parents with young kids. I had several conversations with kids up in Atlanta just yesterday. I was at an esports arena, right? Bringing in the little kids. They're like, can we play something, please, that doesn't have guns? My, my son is, is eight years old. I don't want him playing anything with guns. So they play Super Smash Brothers. But when you look at, like, they have these little flip folders. One says PC, Xbox, like, uh, play PS4 and Switch. You flip through their catalogs. Everything was either Call of Duty or Fortnite or Apex Legends or something with a gun. Mm-hmm. No, it, it, it's it's tough because, like you were saying, the studies have been done that clearly show, um, it, you know, that it doesn't link to the mass shootings, that it really doesn't have anything to do with it. But at the same time, you can understand a parent of a young child that that maybe even hears the studies but still just doesn't want to believe it, you know, because their kid is so young. Um, and, and it's tough because, you know, in my personal opinion, especially a game like I could understand it almost more for like a Call of Duty, but if you look at a Fortnite where it's cartoonish, you know, there's no blood. There's literally, even when you knock somebody, quote unquote, or eliminate them, and you know, it doesn't even say kill; it says eliminate. Um, I don't know. It'll be interesting to see as Fortnite continues, you know, how it handles that problem. Because, like you're saying, for tournaments like this and with parents, even Fortnite is getting that stigma kind of now, and so it'll be interesting to see how them and the Call of Duties deal with it, but. Um, it'll also be interesting to see how people within the industry try to continue to be a voice to the fact that, you know, it, it really doesn't link to anything that happens with those sort of mass shootings and all that. Um, it, it's kind of like a frustrating, but also like understandable conflict right now, like in my opinion, because I kind of get it, but at the same time, I personally don't see the correlation and, and the studies don't show the correlation. So right. Um, what you have to kind of consider is that the people who are making these decisions didn't go up playing video games like you did. Right. Right. So they're, they're bringing a different perspective. Not that it's necessarily wrong, but it is at the very least uninformed, if not ignorant. Uh, but, but I've also, and I'm not going to mention the schools, but we've been having conversations here locally in the community, trying to get the schools into esports tournaments. You know, and, and I'm not saying that there are no violent games made by any developers. Or there are no guns, no games that have uh, that, that no games made by any developers have guns. Uh, and actually, one example we brought was a game that had guns in it, but it was a really cool concept that wasn't being done anywhere. And you're not really shooting. Well, at some point you're shooting people, but at first you're shooting monsters. And one university told us flat out, like, we won't have any mature rated games on campus, period. And it was a mature rated game. Right. So they're yeah. taking a stance, like, it, regardless of whether or not it has guns, it's just mature rated automatically off the table. Right, right. Yeah, no, and I know you and I have talked off mic about that a bit and the the conflicts that there are there, just even if it has guns or shooting or, or anything like that. Um, so it, it'll be interesting to see how, how things play out and how people begin to maybe like you're saying it's just a lack of education you know maybe they don't know about the studies maybe they're just ignorant to the fact of it um you know uninformed is, is really maybe what it is so it, it'll be interesting to see that that play out um a question to, to circle back i know we kind of went down that track but that was interesting but a question i want to circle back to on the indie games is so you have project mq that is that you guys are working with you guys have been going for six years to be a voice and a platform for indie games but you know, what else has to be done from others in the industry to help propel indie games? You know, is it funding? Is it being a, a platform, being a voice for it? Or, or what do you think has to be done in order to get indie games more into the mix? It's it's education, first and foremost, and then financial support. You may have seen this or not, but, you know, a lot of the major players now are starting to get into indie games because they recognize that that's where all the innovation is coming from. Again, you know, indie games are more or less responsible for the entire Battle Royale genre. They created a genre, right? And right. This is a funny story about Rocket League. I don't know if you're familiar with that game. Yeah, yeah. Uh, EA Electronic Arts, who makes Madden, launched a program last year or maybe two years ago called EA Originals. And they got covered in GamesBeat, which is a subsidiary or a segment of VentureBeat business mm -hmm. publication, saying they created EA Originals. I believe this is VentureBeat or GamesBeat because they wanted to, quote unquote, find the next Rocket League. <laughs> uh, 
So there's a follow-up article where the Psionics team, which is the indie studio that created Rocket League, replies back and said, we actually presented Rocket League to you and you turned us down. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) I've never heard that before. That's actually really interesting. So I didn't know that. So Rocket League started as an indie game? Yeah, Rocket League started as an indie game. Epic Games, who was, again, part of the Tencent investment portfolio, recently acquired the Psionics team. Wow. And Same so, thing actually happened to Brawlhalla. I don't know if you've played that. That's uh, it, I haven't. Not haven't that Epic Games. Brawlhalla is kind of like Super Smash Brothers, except you have like custom skins. Okay. Like, it's basically better than Super Smash Brothers in every imaginable way. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ubisoft earlier this year acquired Blue Mammoth Games, the indie studio in Atlanta that made the Brawlhalla game. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. No, I played a lot of Super Smash when I was a kid, but I, ha- I haven't played Brawlhalla, so I'll have to look out for that. That's interesting. So, okay, so Rocket League started as a new game. And then, so essentially, and correct me if I'm wrong because I'll make sure I'm getting this. So, would you basically say then Fortnite started out as an indie game? Or? Fortnite didn't start out as an indie game. It was created by Epic Games, which is, you know, a publicly traded company. Right. You know, they're AAA, for lack of a better term. But it was 100% inspired by and directly influenced by an indie game. They basically, depending on who you ask, stole the concept of an indie game to create their game. Right. And no, and I, and I zone in on those two because basically if you're a kid in middle school or high school right now and you've played video games in the last two years, you have more than likely probably spent a significant amount of time playing either Rocket League or Fortnite, which, you know, like you're saying, Rocket League started as an indie game and then Fortnite came from that idea of that indie company. So more so, I'd be really interested to see a study of how many people have played any game and not even realized it. Because if you think about those two mainstream games, people have touched it, you know. So Exactly. And, and that's the point that, that we understood a couple of years ago is that a lot of people are already actually playing indie games, but they don't know that they're playing indie games. And these are the same people who are, you know, bad-mouthing, or for, I don't know if I can swear on your podcast, but bad-mouthing uh, you know, indie games saying that they're crap and they're low quality X, Y, Z, but they're at the same time playing indie games. They don't know they were indie or that they started indie. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, that's super interesting. No. And, and, and like you're saying, I think it's an education and, and people like yourself in the industry just continuing to, to have a voice for it and educating others that, you know, maybe they just really just don't even know. Um, but at the same time, people shouldn't badmouth something if they don't have a full understanding of it. So. Right. Um, no, that's, that's awesome. Um, so Marcus, before we get to the, the lightning round, which I call the lodges light seven, I always, you know, let the guests, if there's anything that we haven't covered in the podcast episode that you want to take a minute or two to talk about that you think was important or to re highlight anything. Um, I always give my guests that, that chance. Awesome. Well, we're looking in 2020 and kind of partially announced this, but looking in 2020 to launch a collegiate esports platform powered by indie games. Uh, 90% of esports fans use adblock technology, and 18 only 18% of Gen Z demographic watch cable on a weekly basis. So for brands who are trying to reach Gen Z and millennials, esports is very quickly becoming the only way to do that. If you add that to the fact that for the last eight consecutive years, enrollment nationwide has decreased, and the fact that 97% of kids ages 12 to 17 played video games, yet only 4% of colleges had esports scholarships. Uh, both college universities and brands, in my opinion, desperately need to figure out a turnkey esports solution. And ideally something that is both family, brand, and school friendly. And that's where we see indie games having this massive opportunity. So I've got some talks in the works. I'm hopefully gonna close some of them this week. I can't quite share them yet. Yeah, that, that are going to help support us do that on a national level. Oh, that's awesome. So you, uh, exciting times ahead for, for Project MQ and, and everything you guys are working on there. Yeah. All right. Well, so that brings us to the Lodges Light 7, um, which I've told you a little bit about is just seven. Uh, I, sh- I shouldn't say seven easy questions because two of them are a bit deep, but just it's a chill way to end the podcast for our guests to learn a little bit more about you on the personal side and, and that whole sort of thing. So the first question I have for you, Marcus, is if you're about to take a flight, what snack do you grab before boarding? Uh, I don't, and then I suffer through this flight, but what, <laughs> um, 
when I'm on the flight and I fly Delta, I always eat the Cheez-Its. Okay. Nice, nice. Um, if you could be the host of any TV show, uh, so a gaming show, someone said Ellen in the past, you know, any show like that, what show would you pick? Gaming shows. Um, whichever one, that one that used to be on Nickelodeon where they played video games, I can't remember what that's called because it's been 20 years. So I can't give you the name of it. There was a video game game show. So whatever the name of that is, and the listeners may know, someone yeah. sent it to me so I know, that game. Okay, nice, nice. Um, if you could pick anybody to hang out with for a day, dead or alive, who would you choose? Dave Chappelle. I grew up listening to a lot of Dave Chappelle in high school. Like, you know, this is back when we had CDs, which is how yeah. I him. Uh, but we would just listen to Dave Chappelle just... My brother and my sister and I were driving back and forth to school. Okay. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. All right. This is one of the more deeper ones, but if you could cover any sport, so any pro sports, esports, um, whatever you might want it to be, who would you say is your Mount Rushmore? So who are your four best or, or favorite players of all time? Hmm. That's a tough question. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have a lot of time with everything I'm doing that follows sports, so I'm just going to give a lazy answer and say Michael Jordan, Steph Curry, um, uh, Ben Bishop, who used to play for the Lightning as a goalie, but now isn't anymore, and... Um, Any eSport or like a streamer or like a pro player or anything like that? Um, I... I don't follow the personality, so it's hard for me to oh, I got you. before the answer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, no, we'll, we'll go with the, I mean, those are three, good. Three, three is all I got right now. I'll think of a fourth one. I'll, I'll send it to you in the <laughs> Sounds good, sounds good. Um, this one's easier. Are you a cat or dog person? Dog. I actually used to have a pit bull that okay. I brought down from um, Georgia when I moved down here six years ago. And I stayed over next to Tampa Airport. It was a hotel that a private property acquired. And so they didn't have the same breed restrictions as everyone else in Florida has. Um, but when I met my wife back when she was my girlfriend, um, and then we got to the point where we got engaged and I had to move where I did move down to Bradenton to be closer to her family unit because mm-hmm. eventually we had kids. Uh, I couldn't bring my dog with me. So unfortunately I had to put it up for adoption, but a dog person, it's a smart dog. Pit bulls are brilliant animals. Yeah, yeah. No, that's interesting. That's a cool story. Um, here's my second deep question. So we're at six out of seven questions, but this one is, if you could ask God one question, what would it be? Definitely. What, what's, always. The answer, what, what's the answer to life? It can't be 42. <laughs> I feel like it's something else. 42 is a good answer, but I'm sure there's a better answer. Okay. Um, and then lastly, if you could be the star of any movie, so, you know, be like the character in that movie, what movie would you pick? Michelangelo and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, but not okay. the ones that Michael Bay did. Okay, <laughs> okay. I don't know. I can't remember which ones I watched as a kid. They had a TV show too, didn't they? Yeah, they had a TV show, okay. and that was like one TV show where they had like a fifth Ninja Turtle, and it was a girl, and she had magic powers. Okay. They, they jumped the shark long before Michael Bay got there, but definitely like Ninja Turtles 1 and 2, Michelangelo in one of those two movies. Gotcha. So the, so the old school ones. The old school ones, right? The classic. <laughs> no, I like it. Well, Marcus, thank you again for coming on and, and sharing everything about yourself and what you're doing with Project MQ, with with TAG and everything going on down here in Tampa. I really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing with everybody. Where can they find you on social media? I'm on Twitter at There Are Two of Me because I have an identical twin at there are two of me two is spelled out T-W-O. Uh, I spend an unhealthy amount of time on LinkedIn because I think it's grossly underrated as a business <laughs> development tool. So you will most likely find me there. Uh, and then I'm also on Facebook. We're, we're trying to get back to doing a monthly newsletter that we haven't done in six months. But if you go to www.patreon, sorry, uh, medium.com slash at Project MQ, you can subscribe to our newsletter. And in that newsletter, we share like the coolest new Kickstarter games and, and even like alphas and betas of really cool games made by indie studios that haven't launched yet. But because they're alphas and betas, usually they're free. So it's basically free games um, that are up and coming. 
And then lastly, uh, on Patreon, www.patreon.com slash projectmq, we actually share on almost a weekly basis, like the day-to-day ups and downs, like raw take on what it's like to grow our company when we're underfunded and trying to solve an impossible problem while managing all those responsibilities and taking all the hits. Yeah, which I'm sure is interesting to watch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, that's awesome. Well, Marcus, thank you again. Really appreciate it. I had a fun time uh, recording this with you. Yeah, thanks for the invite. And, uh, you know, we'll cycle back up soon. We've got to get you more involved in TAG. But like I said, we've got to kind of get some more infrastructure in place. Definitely. You're going to be a welcome addition to the team. And there's a lot of opportunity for Tampa in 2020 and moving forward. Yeah, no, I'm excited and I'm looking forward to it. Uh, so to all of our listeners, I hope you guys enjoyed this as well. And we'll catch you next time on the Lodges podcast. What's up, guys? Thanks for listening. Please subscribe and leave us a five-star rating if you've enjoyed this. You can find us on social media at Lodges underscore financial. Please go check out our social pages where you can find lots of other great content committed to gaming and esports. This is also the best place to be kept up to date with everything going on at Lodges. Thanks, and you were just listening to the Lodges podcast.